Let's take our Bibles this morning. We want to take our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, one of my favorite uh, movies, it would seem, is National Treasure. Anybody ever seen that movie, Nicholas Cage? Yeah. If you haven't seen it, the movies, you've probably seen it a few times on television. It's kind of an older movie, I guess, around 2004, 2005. But the story is this man and his entire family, the Gates family, looking for this treasure that was buried somehow, some way, back during the Revolutionary War. Fictitious story. But his whole family, his great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father, and now himself, um, Ben Gates, was uh, really just spending his whole life sacrificing everything to find this treasure. Not so much for himself, for the money, even though it's part of it, I'm sure, but just for the discovery itself. Now, you think about a person, now he eventually found the treasure, that's why it's fiction. But uh, he found the treasure, but the point is, he sacrificed his whole life. Several generations had sacrificed their whole life for what? For what they considered their treasure to be. Uh, I recall stories of the Old West. Now, people went out to California because of the gold rush. Uh, a man discovered gold on his property. He never got a chance to spend any of it because he was not only uh, just uh, overloaded with people on his own, own property taking the gold, but also there was killings going on. People would discover gold and they would die for it because someone would shoot them for it. People just going, had that gold fever, just whatever they had to do to really go after their treasure. And so as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's surprising and yet not surprising on how Jesus approaches chapter 6. Now, we just came out of chapter 5 with the Beatitudes and the similitudes, and, and Jesus said, well, you say this, but I say this. What was, it, what was he doing? He was bridging the gap, and Matthew's bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The last book ever written in the Old Testament was Malachi, and 400 years of an intertestamental period of, of a silence that was going on. And now, because the Jews of old were thinking, hey, you know, we're privileged people. We're, the, we're God's chosen people of the Old Testament. And now there was something new was going on, a brand new thing, where no longer did you go to the temple and sacrifice goats and sheep, but now Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was going to die on the cross for their sins, and they needed a Savior. Before, when you're sharing Christ with someone, before you can convince them of receiving Christ, they have to know the why. They have to know the purpose behind it all. They have to know their need, and that's exactly what Matthew was getting down to. In a whole chapter 5, we looked at that. And he said, look, it's more important of the condition of the heart because out of the heart, we said that's the causal core of who you are, the foundation, and out of the heart, the, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the issues of life flow. And so wherever your treasure is in this passage, we're going to discover that's where your heart's going to be also. So he starts off with money in chapter 6. He talks about why you should give. And then I don't want to call it an interruption because God, to God there are no interruptions. But in Luke it says the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he began to teach them to pray beginning in uh, verse 5 of chapter 6. And as he was looking at how to pray, he was praying First of all, here's how to do it. And then in verses 16 through 18, he says, you do it from the heart, from the, from the inner core of who you are. And after he teaches on prayer and how the heart comes into it, he goes right back to talking 
about money. And in this, he talks about two treasures, two visions, and two masters. That's not my points, by the way, this morning. I just thought I'd bring that little tidbit out to you. The points are this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Aren't you curious a little bit on why Jesus would talk more about money than he did about love, joy, and peace all rolled into one together in the New Testament? So why? Well, because the power that money and treasure, whatever your treasure is, particularly money in this case, can have over your life. So here's the three points in the outline. We're going to take it like a sandwich. We'll probably take the middle first and then go to the outside. The power it wells in our life, the place it holds in our life, and finally, the greater power to break its hold. Let's read beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That's the central verse of this passage. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light in, in, um, in you is darkness. How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, again, Jesus talked so much. A lot of his parables were about money. So why? Well, the power, because of the power it holds in our life. Now, in verse 21, it talks about a treasure. And in this verse, it says that wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. So there's really a, a two-way of looking at things here. First of all, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. But if you put your treasure in something, your heart's going to grow toward that. And so it kind of goes both ways. A treasure is anything you value greatly. It is the, it's really the most important thing in your life. Remember what Jesus was talking about when he said, there's a man who said there's a treasure in the field. And so he goes off and sells everything he has and buys that field. And he says, a man finds a pearl of great price. In fact, you can't put, basically you can't put a price on it. So he goes and sells everything he has in order to buy that pearl. And, and he's teaching again in Matthew 13 that we'll get to in several weeks, a couple of months actually. We'll get to that passage, but he's basically saying, we decide what our treasure is. And then we go after it and it dictates a lot of our life. Now, money is often the, the, the treasure of our hearts. Why? Well, even back then, now think about the audience that he was preaching to. There's no question there was a few people like Joseph of Arimathea and a few other guys that really had some money. But most of these people were poor. Some of them maybe were even beggars, but many of them were just farming poor. And he's talking to them about money. You see, you don't have to, it's not necessarily you have to be rich in order to have money in the wrong place in your life. Because money represents our value sometimes, doesn't it? It represents the value that we have to ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, and how we think other people feel about us as well. It represents our work. If I work real hard, I'm going to get something in return. And that something I get in return is my reward, my just, by the way, my just reward for having done that work. And then it's our capacity of influence. 
If you have money, you have influence. If you have money, you have affluence. You, you were able to buy uh, uh, many, many things. And so the treasure is important because it influences our heart. Now notice the illustration he gives about the heart in verse 21. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. He's saying, look, when the lights are on, the light comes through the eye, and then the rest of the body responds. For example, if you're in a dark room and there's no light at all, the body does not know where to go. The body's feeling its way along. The body, your whole body is blind to everything that's going on. But if the light's turned on, the light goes in and your eye is healthy. The light comes through the eye and the whole body then is directed. It knows where to go and it knows the dangers involved and the, and the, the right paths to take, the right directions to go. And he goes on to say, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So he says the light, the heart. If, if the heart in you is full of darkness, then your whole life will be full of darkness. If, you are, if the heart can't find, it, it's off. It, the, the body and the rest of life, you might say, cannot find its way. I recall that uh, atheist that was way back a couple of centuries ago that was talking about how there is no God, and he painted a world of no God. And in this little story of really personal testimony, he says, my life partner, his, his living girlfriend, he said, we cannot live with the reality of life the way it is. It seems that we have lost our way. And he's talking about all of mankind. He says, there is no God, but there not being a God, there is no light, so therefore we've lost our way. And that's the way it is when your heart is in the wrong place. Luke 12, 15 says, Take care and be on your guard, Jesus said, of all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Now, when you take this verse, along with what Jesus is saying here, you find some similar Greek words. And what he's saying is, is that the love of money and the things that about possessions cause basically a love form or materialism. Now, we look at materialism, and we need to define it. It's, an, it's, it's really a great desire, an, a, a, uh, an inordinate desire and dependence or dependence on material things. Now, I know that when we think about materialism, we think about Scrooge and the cartoon and all the coins on his desk or all the coins on his bed. I was talking to someone years ago. And they, they're talking negative about materialism. Now, you know, you know just, America's just filled with materialism. Well, that's true. The world's filled with materialism. That's true as well. But he was as well because he didn't like money. But you, after talking to him, you realize he liked the things that money buy, could buy. Well, that's what materialism is. It's not, no one's going to the bank every day and, and saying, yeah, I want to see my bank account. I want it out, out here in ones so I can play with it. You want money in order to buy things, in order to have affluence, in order to have influence. Now, we think about, well, <clears throat> my goodness, that, that's not about me. You know, I'm not, I'm not a greedy person. I, I, am, I, I do not have greed in my life. I don't have, uh, I'm not guilty of materialism. I give money away and I'm, I think I'm generous. Well, are we? Tim Keller was, uh, in his younger days, was, was teaching this Bible study up in New York City, and he was preaching on or teaching on the seven deadly sins. And his wife said, 
that's, now you're, you're going to be teaching on greed, right, at some point? And he said, yes, I am. And she said, well, that'll be your lowest crowd. Lowest crowd. When, when we actually go full-fledged into a, um, a stewardship emphasis over the last 25 years, some of our lowest attended crowds have been about money. It's not always those who are curious about it. It's those who are already tithing and already giving and, oh, I'm already doing that. Why was, and it's true, the lowest attended Bible study was the one on greed. Why? Because nobody thinks they're guilty of it. We're blind to that. We, we don't believe it's a part of our life. I remember when the recession hit in 2007. And I could remember thinking to myself, well, God, this is a bad thing. It's a bad thing for churches. It's a bad thing in a way for, for I mean, it's bad for everybody. But you know, one thing, revival could really come from this. It really could. Just the opposite happened. Just the opposite. Did you, you know that, right? I mean, you know that. I was talking to someone in a, in a store, and uh, this is years ago, and they're not here today, and so I'm not going to hurt their feelings, but um, it's just typical. I, I ran a, This is the one I can just remember. I was in a store. I was talking to someone, and uh, they had dropped out of church, and I hadn't been there for a good six months. And basically from talking about them, even though they seemed to have a good attitude, the basic problem was this. Look, God, I tithed, I served, I, I was faithful, and my business is going under. You've let me down. You say, well, then maybe God did let them down. Okay, God let them down. I'll give you that, okay? But what did he let him da- let him down for? What, they, what God did not do and refused to do was bless their treasure because their treasure wasn't him. You, we ask God to do that all the time. God, bless, you know, I'm giving my life to my business. I'm working 12, 14, 16 hours a day or my ministry or, or what, my family. I'm, I'm giving everything. And God, if you let me down in this area, then I'm going to get very angry with you. And they, they left church and so many dropped out of church during that era and have dropped out since because of the resentment and bitterness that they have in their heart of what went on there. Now, there's no question that when we give, God's going to bless, but it's not like I'm going to give a dollar and God's going to bless me with two and you go back and forth and a hundredfold. It's, it's over the lifetime that God blesses and it's not always in material possessions, but he always takes care of us. But we see that of people who are blinded. So what's the danger of it? Well, it blinds us. Money can blind you. Again, people think to themselves, well, I don't need to come to a a service like this because I already give. I'm already generous because I give a certain percentage of my money. Could you give more? Does it hurt to give that? Is it pleasurable to give that? We don't know if we're greedy, greedy or not. And then money can control you. And of course, everybody knows this. I'm not sharing anything new with you there. People take jobs because of money. People move to a place where there is not an evangelical Bible preaching church, perhaps. It's very seldom, but they do that. Because why? Well, it's the promotion. It's, it's for the money. People make deals. People make sales without telling everybody that's, you know, really is going on. Unethical decisions. Uh, you know, maybe, okay, let's make it. I, I was, uh, my wife and I were uh, buying a car at one time, and this is one-time experience. Most of the time, buying a car has not been any kind of a, a hard thing. It's just a long, drawn-out process. But I remember a time where we uh, got a good deal on a car. 
went into the finance office and we were talking and pretty soon I looked down on the contract, the price was the same, but you wouldn't believe all the stuff they were adding on in there that, that were gonna little, be little benefits for me, high price stuff that I never authorized. They didn't want me to sign it. Sneaking stuff in. He had to redo the contract. Now you say, well, he was just simply probably going by what his boss told him to do, probably so. But someone along that line was being greedy. They were saying, my treasure is money, and I'm going to make decisions based upon that money. That's why in verse 24, it says you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to serve God or serve money, and you can say, well, I can serve both. And a lot of the time, and this, is, this passage is not saying that every single day you're going to be confronted on whether you do right or wrong based on God or money, but sooner or later it's going to come, right? Sooner or later, you're going to have to make a decision in life. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to follow something else? It's sort of like uh, the old illustration story I give you about Bob Buford. He was heading into the <clears throat> second half of life. <coughs> Excuse me. Second half of life. And he met with this guy that uh, helped out the Coca-Cola company when they messed up on the new Coke, if you remember that, Michael Cammy. And Michael Cammy's not a believer. Bob Buford's a strong believer. And he said, these are the goals in the second half of my life. Here's, here's the changes that are going to have to take place and the money and the investments. And, and, and finally, Michael Cammy, after looking at it, says, look, I'm really confused here. You've got two things. If you can think about a circle, and right in the center of it is where every, every, everything's going to determine what's in the middle, the center, the hub of everything that's going on in your life. He says, I see two things here that are possibles. He says, what is that? He said, money or God. Now, which one do you want to put in the, in the circle? Which one do you want to put in the middle? Which one do you want to base all of your decisions on? Came right out of here, and Michael Cammy had no idea what he was, he was asking. That was so scriptural. Bob Buford quickly said, well, I want Jesus right in the middle. I want God right in the middle. And he, he suddenly dawned on him that he had never really made that decision, not fully. And he says, wow, now that I've made that decision... It's almost a fearful thing, which we'll talk about next week. It's almost an anxiety, worry, fear thing until he got everything mapped out on what that was really going to mean. And so we look even at the greed. 2007 collapse. I mean, I know all about the loans with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and all those people um, and all that. And a stack of loans that were supposed to be all B's but had some F's in there and 125% loans and but I was talking to some people in our church and I said what do you think what do you think about all this they say it's greed not only people buying up houses by the droves to flip them without doing anything with them but the 125 percent loans and the 110 percent loans that people were telling their people they could do why more money more money more money the greed for the love of money the bible says is the root of all kinds of evil even it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now, why? Why is it so dangerous? Because of the place it holds in our life. It says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart <clears throat> is going to be also. Well, your treasure, again, determines your heart, but it also reveals your heart. And we're torn between these two masters in verse 24. So money, basically what it's saying here. He's talking about the two masters and the treasure. He says money represents your significance. It's, it's who you, maybe who you are. 
the kind of clothes that you can wear, the kind of house that you can buy, your status in life, the kind of uh, clubs that you can join. And also it represents your security. There's something about having money that says, I can have control in a world that's uncontrollable. I can have control of my life a little bit in a world around me that seems uncontrollable. And so it takes away the fear, we think, from our life. We'll talk again about that more next week. And then when someone begins to talk about your money and giving part of it away in a church, it represents more. Why, why do we recoil at that? Why do we get up, bristled up with that sometimes, many times, more so than any other subject? Well, part of it is because you've had some bad memories of that. Some of it's because the bad, bad TV shows and movies you've seen about charlatans or whatever. But basically, what you're saying is, what, what you're thinking to yourself many times is that, okay, here's a preacher that's trying to take my money, who's trying to take my significance, my value, how I feel about myself. He's trying to take part of that away. I've earned it. I have earned it. So why should I give any of it away? And then we look at life as a pie. And we think to ourselves, this is all there is, just this pie. This is all I'm ever going to have. In fact, as I get older, I might have less. I may have a smaller pie. And we don't think about the fact that when we're generous, the Bible says in Proverbs, when we, uh, God refreshes us when we refresh other people. When we give to other people, God's going to be generous with us. We don't think about that. We look at God as a taker, not as a giver. On the one hand, Satan's trying to take your money over here with bad investments and bad stuff and sin. And, and God's trying to take your money and your value and your significance and your security on the other side by giving it to, to the church or something or to a ministry. And so we look at this and we understand, we need to understand there's a problem here. There's a problem of faith. There's a problem of how we look at God, but also there's a part of us that places that treasure in what we can earn and what we have. So how do you break that? How do you break its hold? Well, I said this is going to be sort of a sandwich, and so we're looking back up to the, um, the loaf of bread at the top in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, treasures on earth will die one day. They're just gone. They're just gone. I mean, you're, you're going to leave it all behind. The old, you know, the old joke, <clears throat> old story goes, man, that guy was rich. How much did he leave behind? All of it. All of it. I've never seen a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse. Some of you are going to go rent a hearse, rent a U-Haul just to show me different, <laughs> but one of these days. But I've never seen that. Well, you just leave it all. Now, that's kind of, if I can compare that to the Civil War. Here were, maybe you're in the Civil War and you're living in the South, and you have what they call Confederate money. You have a lot of investments. In fact, you think to yourself, wow, you know, the, the war is getting bad, and I don't know how it's going to end, who's going who's gonna to win it, and so I'm going to take my money and cash in all my chips, and I'm going to put all my money in my safe. 
And then the South loses the war. And what happens to your Confederate money? It's gone. It's worthless. And so you invest, you invest, and you invest in this world. Your value, your significance, your security, the long-term security, your retirement, your, your influence in society, your affluence in the, the things that you can buy. And when you die, it's like Confederate money. It just all goes away. It has no value to you whatsoever. So he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How are you going to do that? You're going to invest it in people that are going there. You're going to invest it in people not only that are already going there, but also those who need to go there, who need to receive Christ. And then when you get to heaven, there's going to be great reward. In the Bible, Jesus said in another passage, he says, I'm going to give you true riches. Why are there true riches? I don't... We, there are crowns in heaven, rewards in heaven. There's walking around heaven knowing that you've led certain people to the Lord or you've given to missions or you've given to the church and therefore people have been led to the Lord. There's all kinds of rewards. But why are there? They, they, why does it become yours forever? Because they never go away. They're eternal. They're true riches because they belong to you permanently. So how much? Because it's cures you. I've never met a generous person that was greedy. It cures it. Because why? It's just like any other thing. You're, I'm preaching on something, and you think, wow, I'm really convicted of that. I need to take that thing off the throne of my life and put Jesus up there. How do you do that? I, whether it's money or anything else. How, you, you have to give away the other God. You have to devalue your other God in your heart, and that comes with generosity. And so I'm going to go to another passage, and it is from the final book of the Old Testament, the, the last book these people would have. It comes from Malachi 3.10, very famous verse about giving. But it gives you three things, three guidelines. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me into the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. And I love what the other versions say in the original Hebrew until it just overflows in your life. Just overflows. So how do, what, what does it say in this passage? It says three things. It says how much, it says where, and it says why. How much? A tithe. It says, bring the whole tithe to the storehouse. A, a tithe means a tenth portion. It was started back in the life of Abraham, way back in Genesis, chapters 12 and following. And then it was incorporated later into the law. And a lot of people say, well, that's just Old Testament law. And it's true that it started in the Old Testament. 10% meant that God was taking a portion of what everybody earned and giving to uh, Levites and benevolence and all these other things that needed to go on. The Levites were the priests back in that day. And they were saying, look, I don't want the Levites to own any land at all. They're not getting anything. No inheritance at all. I'm, I'm their inheritance. And so they get the 10% and they distribute it among the poor and they have to have a salary for themselves. And so that's the way it started. But Jesus talked about this in the New Testament as well. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And 
In Matthew 23, when we come to that passage, we'll put this a little bit more in context. For you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And this just goes along with what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Look, it's not that you shouldn't do these things. You should, but you need to do it from the heart. See, in the Old Testament, you did it to avoid a curse. In the New Testament, you tithe to gain a blessing, but also you do it from the heart because you want certain things to be done in your life and the lives of those around you. Uh, the Bible teaches us about this whole, you say, wow, man, that's a lot of money. 10% can be uh, hurtful when you first start doing it. To some of you, it's just a drop in the bucket. It really is at this point. But for some of you, that's a, a huge challenge. And you think to yourself, there's no way. In fact, I don't even think that's reasonable. You know, really, it depends on perspective. Let me share with you, uh, basically, and, and I know I've done this uh, many times. As a matter, matter of fact, it's almost like a, you know, a joke around our young people a few years ago. And, uh, but they didn't have 10 ones to their name to do the illustration. So uh, that was kind of a different thing. Um, I've got 10 ones, and this just represents each one 10% of, uh, of our income. Now, if we look at this and says, oh, this is mine, this is my money. Now, how much money should I give back to God's kingdom? And you think to yourself, wow, a whole 10% a whole is a lot. You know, maybe I'll, I'll give, you know, $100 back to God's kingdom. Because it is my money. It is my choice. It, all, it does belong to me. And so I need to regulate that. So I think that I will, I'll give this much. Or maybe nothing at all. I mean, after all, you know, you, you that may think the church is here for you. And, and just the fact that you're coming. And by the way, I'm grateful for that because it gives me a chance to invest in your life. But you say, I'm coming, and that, sh that should be enough. Or I'm serving over here, that should be enough. And so, therefore, all this money is mine, and God, God's gracious, and it's okay. If you look at things that way, then I can sort of see your argument a little bit, a little. You're, you're going to be materialistic. You're going to live your life in greed, and you won't even know it. But I, I, can, I get it. But the Bible says that God owns it all. Um, we read in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world that those who dwell therein. Now, all through the Bible, you know, God created it, God sustains it, God owns it. He owns it all. Again, no one takes anything with them when they leave this world but their eternal soul. And so God owns everything and has passed down Maybe from generation to generation, God can give you. So, well, no, I'm a harder worker than most people. Well, Deuteronomy says that God even gives you the ability and the desire to work. So he gives it all. So when I'm thinking, okay, it's sort of like a, a sharecropper back in the Old Testament times. I'm a sharecropper, and God, this guy owns the land, and he owns the seed, and he owns all. Well, he, he puts so much into it, and now I'm doing all the work. And so what do we do? Well, we, we sort of split it 50-50. And you think to yourself, well, if God owns everything, well, I have a lot of bills. I have a house and rent. I have a car payment, insurance to pay. Got all this stuff going on, food to buy, shoes. So God, uh, I don't know, 
I mean, that, that's the way it was in the Old Testament a lot of times, 50-50. God says, no. You think, wow, God, you mean more? Oh, no, less. Less. Well, God, you mean I can keep 70% and just give 30 to the kingdom, kingdom's work? And God says, less. In fact, he says, let me give you a guideline for this. Just 10. Now, I own everything, and I'm allowing you to keep 90%. And you know, and I know, that, you know, this is probably not going to happen, and I'm not saying that it should happen or can't. I mean, I'm just saying it simply could and has among some people. They've, they've turned over and just lost everything. Through the stock market, through their ability to work, they've lost it all. We're, we're one moment away sometimes from disaster. And so when we look at this, we're, we're grateful for everything. We're not greedy anymore because we're grateful for everything. And we say, okay, God, here, here, here's the 10. God often requires something of the physical. In fact, everywhere in the Bible, even the, even the Lord's Supper, or, you know, we, we do something physical with the Lord's Supper. We, we take it sometimes on the side, sometimes here in the front. It's the, the bread and the cup, and it's something physical to point to the spiritual. The Bible says to us, it says to us in Deuteronomy 14, bring the tithe to eat before the Lord your God at the place he shall choose as his sanctuary. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn of your flocks and herds. See, it's not all about money back then because they had bartering. They had, they, they had goods and possessions besides the money. He says the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. See, every time I tithe, I'm reminded that everything I have belongs to the Lord. Everything. And so we look, and we ask ourselves the question, God, how much? And then we look at the question of what or where. It says in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithes to the storehouse. Now, what is the church? Why should the church be the storehouse? And it is. And there's no way you can kind of maneuver around that as far as what, how the New Testament applies that in the Old Testament. Well, the church is a place of worship, but it's also a training ground. And we've said before, what we want to do is train our people in maturity in Christ to send them out into the world, to live a different life into the world, to be able to take adversity in the world, take those trials in the world, and, and make them something, and, and grow in Christ, and other people are going to be attracted to what their lifestyle is all about and want to come and uh, talk about Jesus himself and inquire about Jesus. Now, we want to do that. We want to be an attractional ministry in that way. What do we do here? What is the church for? It's, it's about small groups. It's about that fellowship in small groups. It's about growing in the Lord. It's about accountability. It's about getting something from the Word of God every single week. I, I was reminded of, not even reminded, I never thought about it this way. I, I got a new truth this week. New truth. All right? And it's so obvious, you know, I'm stupid. All right? I wouldn't say that, you know, around kids, but, you know, I can tell you. Um, said, if you have a church full of people that don't read the Bible, you have a church with people that are hard to pastor. Now, why would that be? Well, because they're young in the Lord. They don't know how to handle loss. They don't know how to handle adversity. They don't know how to handle the things in their life. They're easy to quit and just quit, quit God. 
because they're not nourished in the word of God. And so that's what this church is about. Now we have utility payments. And you say, well, I, I'm going to go to a church that rents the bill. You know, they've got, they have rent payments. You know that. And there's only how big their church can get. So it's really kind of the same thing. We have $27,000 a month spent on utilities. So you can have air conditioning. And, and I can have air conditioning <laughs> as well. Ministries in our church. You say, now, wait a minute. We go on a trip. We do this. We pay our own way. There's nothing that happens in this church that something is not supplemented out of the budget. Nothing. Salaries. You say, yeah, you know, just salary. You know, pastor's preaching for his salary. Those salaries are already set last December. We already voted on it. It's already done. I'm not going to get any more money, any less money, on, based on what you give at all. We plan it that way. There's nothing in that for me. But thank you very much that you resent paying my salary. I appreciate it. I mean, why would you do that? You know, you've got people that are working hard to clean up the church, working hard to mow the lawns. We've got, we have people that are our administrative assistants that really work hard. They kind of uh, behind the scenes doing all the work. We have ministers that, that work uh, during the day, at night, uh, on call. And we could not do that and work another job. We just could not do that effectively and, do, and work another job. We just couldn't. There's salaries. There's missions. 125 call to the, to the mission field and to full-time Christian service. What price can you put on that? What about evangelism? 5,000 people baptized. What kind of price can you put on that? And what kind of price can you put on your, your maturity in the Lord, knowing that you go here, you hear the word of God, if you apply it to your life, it's going to make life so much better for you. What kind of price can we put on that? And so it's the church, but then the why. And I know I need to close. It helps you grow. It's a step of faith. Every time you begin to give 10% of your money, especially from nothing, it's a huge, huge step of faith. It's in, You invest in your church, therefore you want to come more. You, you just want to be a part of it more. It's laying up for yourself real treasures in heaven that we've already talked about. Number three, it's a blessing. The Bible says in Malachi 3.10, he says, I will pour out you a blessing until it overflows in your life. God, what you're doing when you begin to give, you're asking God to get involved in your finances. And then it's obedience. Obedience to God. Now, here's the thing. For years, for 25 years, and before that, before I came here, 10 years before that, I've been preaching obedience, tithing. But I'm reminded of the fact that when I was first saved, if God would have called me to preach, well, they, I've been asked, if God would have called you to preach when, the moment you were saved, what would you have done? I said, I'd probably run. I'd be running. When the disciples were asked by Jesus at first, he says, come and follow me. Later, he says, come and die with me. There was a pro progression there. What would have happened if all the disciples would have asked, come die with me right off the bat? Some of them would have followed anyway. Maybe some of them maybe wouldn't have. And so I'm going to introduce something to you, and a lot of you are going to, uh, you know, you got your little cards, right? Your little welcome cards, okay? Uh, you know, if you want to participate in what I'm about to say, you go right ahead, make sure your name's on it so we can get back to you, and make sure you address it to someone else besides me, okay? That's all I'm saying. I'm kidding. 
No, no, if you, if you, you have an input, I'm serious. But here's the thing. Not everybody, what, what we've had seen happen in the past, a lot of people have committed to tithing, and then they haven't followed through. They're just not ready with their finances. They don't have that enough faith. The Bible says, as, as your faith dictates in your life, so be it in your life, more or less, paraphrase. And, and so there may be someone here that says, I don't have enough faith to do the 10%. But I can look at my budget and I can see, well, I can do three. Well, if you think you can do three, then that's not a step of faith. You need to do at least four. And we're going to ask you to tithe and begin tithing. Now, if you're already tithing, this is not an out for you, all right? Not an out. All I'm saying is I want you to begin toward complete obedience in the Lord and take steps of that. Now, there's a great idea one of our Sunday school teachers had, and I think this is a better idea. This is better. But we're going to offer you that on the commitment card next week that you can start lower and build up every year, one, one or 2% more every year. But here's a better idea that he came up with. And that is in January, you give 1%. Well, January is kind of over. But in February, you give 2%. In March, 3%. And by October, you're tithing. And that's a great idea. You can get a course. You can take a course here, Peace University or Crown Ministries on how to operate your finances. And by the time October rolls around, it's a gradual thing. By October, you, you know what to do. You know how to budget your money. You know, you've seen how God has blessed your life, and you just keep growing in the faith. And then those who are already tithing, you know, what about you? Is, is tithing easy for you? You say, well, I'm generous. I, I tithe. But tithing now is no longer a step of faith for you. And so really is that generosity. Should you go above that? Some of you have already in your mission giving. But should you go above that? And you ask God, God, what do you want me to do in that? And then finally, it helps you overcome materialism. It just helps you overcome it. I remember when I first started tithing, and I, I never knew that I was greedy. I never knew that I, I was somewhat materialistic. I mean, my goodness, I was a college student. I didn't um, have much money. But something happened in my life where I said, God, you are my treasure. I had an awakening moment in my life when I was 19 years old. And after that, I started kind of, every time I'd hear a sermon on tithing, I'd, I'd be the same way. I'd start tithing, and I wouldn't really follow through. You know, after a few months, maybe it'd be sporadic. And I just came to the place where I heard my pastor, Bill Ricketts, preach a message. And I said, God, if, you're, if my heart really belongs to you, this is something that should be simple. It's easy. I don't know how many hours a week to serve you. I don't know what to do in some of the other areas of my life, how much is enough. But here is pretty plain where I need to start. And so it took me filling out a card to make that commitment because I knew if I if I filled out a card and turned it in, I was going to stick to it. And from that moment on, there hasn't been a time in my life or in our life as a couple where we didn't at least, at least tithe. And really, there hasn't been a year when we haven't given above the tithe since we've been, uh, gotten out of, uh, got out of seminary. And so it was a time in my life where I felt like, God, my real treasure is you. And, and maybe that's kind of the problem. 
you think to yourself, well, when you preach on this, I really don't do that. If you preach on that, I, yeah, I really don't do that. And so now you're preaching on giving, and hey, you know, I, I really don't do that either. Then you ask yourself the question, what is the real treasure of your life? What is that? Who is really the most precious thing in your life? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we've given you a way where you can get there even before the end of the year or get there immediately because some of you really can cut back on this and cut back on that, and you, you've got it. You've got the 10%. If you have the faith and if your treasure is in Jesus Christ because Jesus' treasure was in you. He had all the significance. He had all the security. And he came to this earth to give all that up to die on the cross for you. And it was on that cross where he died because you were the greatest treasure of his life. So the question is, he found his treasure in you. Do you find your treasure in him? With heads bowed and eyes closed. This morning, I ask you to pray about your giving this week. And more than that, pray about who's, what is your real treasure in life. Would you do that? Would you just commit to praying about that this week? Not have anything to do with money for just a moment. Just, you know, I will commit to praying and asking God, God, what is the treasure of my life? If that's the desire of your heart, would you lift up your hand and I'll join with you in prayer? All right, anyone else? The rest of you are not going to pray about that. You're so, you, you really are sure that Christ is your treasure. Several of you raised your hands. I'll be praying for you. And I'll be praying for the rest of you as well that we would all come to that point in our life and realize that. Now, maybe there's someone here that has never received Christ in their life. And he found his treasure in you. Now, you would, would you receive that treasure in your heart? You can do so by praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. And if you really mean this prayer, Jesus will come to live inside your heart and life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much <clears throat> for all that you've given. Most of all, Jesus dying on the cross, that he's our true value, our true significance, and our true security. And we just obey you, and everything else is going to fall into place. So I pray that today for everyone here but particularly those who need to receive you, that they would pray this prayer with me. Lord God, thank you for finding your treasure in me, that you would think I'm so important that you would die on the cross for me. I surrender my heart to you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Help me, Lord, to grow in you and help me to have you the Lord of my life every day. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.